0: Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish.
1: And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin.
0: And welcome to our lucky 13th episode of the Nauticast entitled Affairs of the State, an analysis of a Game of Thrones editor 2, where bros, Ned, and Robert go off riding together only to argue and reminisce bitterly over their shared sad history. And this episode is brought to you all by our Lord's Commander, Mark N. and Timothy W. Thank you, gentlemen, for your kind contributions to our little podcast.
1: You are the best. You keep it going.
0: Thanks, guys. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all of our episodes, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, the histories, interviews with George R. R. Martin, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show – anything and everything. So, an enduring part of our podcast. For those who contribute $10 or more a month, uh, that is our Sworn Swords, our king's guard, and our Lord's Commander, you all get the opportunity to ask us a question if you'd like to ask us. So, thank you all for con- contributing. And we have two questions this week. Um, we've got the first one is comes from Sir Travis M., one of our Sworn Swords, and he asks, Best Star Trek captain and starship. Okay. So, um, I'm, I'm <laughs> This gonna, is the awkward part guys. So I, I have to admit something to you guys and I want you all to take this very seriously. And, um, mm-hmm. I, 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 haven't watched star Trek since I was about seven years old. So we're talking now I'm 34 right now. So now we're 27 years ago. I don't know. I'm not a math guy. So I, I, I guess, uh, I, Picard has the best gifts on on Twitter from what I could tell. So Picard and the Starship Enterprise, right? He he's the commander of the Enterprise, correct?
1: That is the one he commands. <sighs> yes. That is that is the name that is the name of the Star Trek ship. Very good job. Oh, yes. You got it just right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let me ask the actual expert. Actually, can you rank us, Emmett, the Star Trek captains and starships from worst to best?
1: Dan, that's that's putting me on the spot. Um I don't know if I could do the, the starships best to worst. Captains? I was Cisco is definitely number one, even though technically not a captain. But as far as protagonist of the show, leader of the flock within the given show, uh, Cisco from Deep Space Nine was the best. Okay. Uh, there's, there's the. It sums up perfectly. There's the mischievous interdimensional being Q, uh, who would always just appear out of nowhere to torment Picard because <laughs> Next Generation was really campy in that way. Uh, you know, he'd show up and like with like a mariachi band, or like vanish Picard off to a dimension where he'd have to fight the Borg. He'd just, you know, whenever the show got stale, they just throw Q in there for fun. And uh, he shows up to bother Cisco once, and Cisco hits him. <laughs> and Q uh, said, "You hit me." Picard never hit me. <laughs> and Cisco said, like I'm not Picard." <laughs> and that was that's Deep Space Nine. The whole show was just like, "Yeah, you love TNG. We love TNG too." But guess what? I'm gonna f- flip every part of it over. So I, I do, I mean, that's why I love Deep Space Nine as a whole, and Cisco as a character. I mean, Picard. You are correct about what the internet has done with Picard. The internet has captured him, <laughs> has captured him perfectly, and all his all his exasperated glory. So you can't go wrong there. So he's, uh, he's your number two. I, I'd have to go with him as number two. Okay. Yeah, to back up the Cisco, in case anything happens. Sure. To Cisco. Which, which, Deep Space Nine being as it did, things tended to happen to Cisco, so it's good to have a backup around.
0: Interesting. But were there other captains? I, I just don't know these things beyond beyond the two you uh, mentioned.
1: Uh, well, I mean, the, well, there's always Kirk, of course, from the original series, True. The classic space cowboy. Although he his his reputation tends to get a little inflated over time. On the show, he was, you know, no no one was really that. Out of control on the actual shows of Star Trek, they're mostly just very calm, orderly people who do their job. I get why it's suffocatingly boring to most people, <laughs> but just for a certain for a certain number of people, it's just very calming. It's like watching a lava lamp. It's just everything is fine. There are calm, patient people doing their jobs in space in the future. Nothing, nothing is ruined. The President's fine. Every, everything is good. Star Trek is waiting for us. Um, That's cool. And yeah, you know, so so Kirk's not actually that much of a hothead in the original show. So he's He's just basically a less smart version of Picard, so I don't find him that comparatively that interesting. And then Janeway on Voyager, and she's kind of annoying, but <laughs> she gets she, she she does get the most interesting ethical like debates over what to do as a captain, hmm. uh, more than like or, like the most interesting and the, the least easily resolved, I would say, uh, of all the captains. Although I like her a little less because her argument always tends to be that I'm just going to be right, so let's shortcut to the point of the argument where I'm <laughs> correct. Which is, 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 kind of, is kind of charming at first, but after a few seasons, Voyager started, started to lag when it was like, oh, the third of the way through the episode, it's like Janeway's going to have a speech about how her correct shortcut was the correct shortcut, and everyone's going to look chastened, and that's going to be the end of the episode. So that structure tended to bore me after a while. Most of Star Trek is bad, to be perfectly clear about this, folks. Uh, most of Star Trek is bad.
0: But there, isn't there one more Star Trek captain, and that is the uh, one played by Jason Isaacs in the most recent uh, Star Trek Oh
1: that's true. You're right. I forgot about um Commander Lucius Malfoy whatever his name is. Malfoy. Star Trek Discovery. That's a hell of a name. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, it was that was that, that was his Harry Potter character. I wish I wish <laughs> that he was Lucius Malfoy on Star Trek. That would be an amazing reveal. Right now in Star Trek Discovery he's just an asshole or turns out to be from the mirror universe. Um, ah which <laughs> All I'll say about that is Jason Isaacs himself is awesome as he is in everything, so that's it's worth watching for that alone. He's got the, that ice in his eyes, that man. Mm. I uh,
0: it's
1: very attractive, is what I'm saying.
0: So my, my connection uh, to to Jason Isaacs is in he he plays uh, Gregory Zukov in the new movie the, the Death of Stalin, which I I haven't seen yet, but I've watched the trailers in, and he looks hilarious. And, and I'm actually surprised because. In um, the movies that I have seen him in, he's mostly been playing villain-type characters, whether he's the, the hard-ass ranger company commander from Black Hawk Down, or he's the yes, indeed. the British dude who burns the church and kills all the civilians in, um, in The Patriot. Do you remember that? Right.
1: That's why I'm so afraid of him. You just made that connection for me, Jeff, because I saw that insane movie when I was <laughs> 10, because that's a movie you showed to children. It's the most violent movie ever conceived of. Um, but my parents didn't know any better. And that's why I'm so afraid of him. Cause he burned that church full of children.
0: Oh my gosh. Thank you, Jeff. Yes.
1: You just done for me what therapy never could. Carry uh, on.
0: Look at, look at this. Our podcast is therapy. So we, we've, I've done Emmett a favor and hopefully I've done you guys a favor too. But yeah, I, I love Jason Isaacs and I, uh, I, I, I might. Watch the new Star Trek just to see Jason Isaacs, and I'm, I'd be okay with that. Even though it probably would break Emmett's heart that that would be the only Star Trek that I've I've seen in my entire life. I mean, I think I remember watching Enterprise when I was a kid. But again, this is we're talking twenty five plus years ago is when I was watching this.
1: It's it's a gorgeous show. The actors are great. There's some dramatic stuff. It just doesn't mean anything at all, which is fine. There's, there's worse things than expensive sci-fi shows that are gripping in the moment don't mean anything. There are far worse things to have and do than that. So I shouldn't bitch too much. Uh,
0: so uh, I actually have a, another question. So there's that um, that show that Seth MacFarlane is doing now, right, on on Fox? Yeah. What's it called again? I can't believe
1: that's a thing. The Orville. The Orville. I'm still surprised that he can – I mean, this is Seth MacFarlane's whole career to a huge extent for me. But like, wow, you really convince people to put money into that, huh? That's impressive <laughs> in and of itself.
0: So would you, would you say that he is as a, as a Star Trek commander? I mean, basically the Orville is Star Trek fan fiction, right? For lack of a better term.
1: Yeah, exactly. He's a – again, it's just – it's that black – the Black Mirror episode of Star Trek. Did you watch that, Jeff?
0: I, I have only watched a half episode of, of Black Mirror, and I was like, nope, enough. When they were talking about the Prime Minister <laughs> and the pig. Yeah, I that's like, true. It does. I think that might. I, I think I'm good. Thanks, thanks, guys.
1: That 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 early one is 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 a little little too into itself. That's true. But there is there is one from the most recent season that I love because it's a great spoof of uh, Star Trek and Star Trek fans. It's about a guy in the near future who. Uh, is a, a video game designer and he has this this uh, virtual reality software in his computer where if he like a coworker he hates or someone who's mean to him like at a coffee shop or something like he gets their DNA and like makes a clone of them in his <laughs> VR world okay. and in his VR world it's Star Trek and he's the captain and they all have to do what he says and like everything's cheery and they're just on missions in this VR world unless they want to leave <laughs> in which case he like you know sp- destroys their face or makes it so they can't breathe or does horrible sci-fi shit to them but the point is that's like what the orville feels like to me (laughs) is seth MacFarlane just doing that like he's just he has enough money that he's convinced people to call him captain of the enterprise which yeah to be perfectly fair if i had a lot of money that's honestly probably what i would do with it Well, i mean it's so i can't I can't fault him for that.
0: It's thematically congruent with the name of the ship Enterprise and having the most money to uh, being able to call yourself the captain, right? I mean, you have to give them thematic consistency, right?
1: Yes, Jeff. Star Trek <laughs> is about the success of capitalism. <laughs> That's exactly what Star Trek is about. Good,
0: good. Maybe i am may, watch I'm the star- show. I'm,
1: I'm staring at the camera like Jim in the office right now. I just saying you know, it's so hard you don't you don't need to watch star trek now jeff you got you you already know it. I, You got it right
0: i, I can't wait now maybe i maybe i'll just watch it anyways now because it's all about the promotion of the free market system and uh and yeah i'm all about that um but it's not
1: i'm gonna kill myself anyway
0: but yeah so um anyways thank you sir travis m for <laughs> for the question and all the sidebars that i've been throwing at emmett to try and troll him and piss him off which is not work because he's still smiling into the camera on the other side of this uh this here Skype conversation we're in.
1: True. I mean, you're a charmer, Jeff, so can never be angry for too long. <laughs> yeah. So we got one more question from Sir Rob L., one of our Sworn Sword patrons. And he asks, can you extol a particularly good section of writing without crapping on <laughs> Grimdark? Asking for my friends, Logan Ninefingers and Monza Mercado. Yes.
0: Uh, there I you know, one of the things we we talk about in this this podcast is uh we, we do like a lot of Martin's prose. We do kind of when, – when we feel like it's not done well or it's clunky, some of the John writing in particular, we, we will say that it doesn't feel amazing and it doesn't read well. But there are – lots of times where Martin's prose is, is amazing and I'll talk about one section from this chapter itself later on um but I, I think and we talked about this in our the dance with dragons versus the storm of swords episode I think that we both agree that Martin's prose improves as he progresses through a song of ice and fire the Game of Thrones is probably his worst prose though he has a number of fantastic lines in it but by the time he gets to a dance with dragons and into the Winds of Winter we get I, I think his martin his prose does improve a lot um so i chose one passage that i really really liked a lot and it's from the winds of winter it's from arianne's second chapter it's from arianne's second chapter from the winds of winter and it's uh she's describing the uh the rainwood as they're 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 going through it on the way up to griffin's roost and uh it's quote dusk found them on the fringes of the rainwood "'A wet, green world where brooks and rivers ran through dark forests "'and the ground was made of mud and rotting leaves. "'Huge willows grew along the watercourses, "'larger than any that Ariane had ever seen, "'their great trunks as gnarled and twisted as an old man's face, "'and festooned with beards of silvery moss. "'Trees pressed close on every side, shutting out the sun, "'hemlock and red cedars, white oaks, "'soldier pines that stood as tall and straight as towers, "'colossal sentinels, big-leaf maples, redwoods, worm trees.' Even here and there, a wild werewood. Underneath their tangled branches, ferns and flowers grew in profusion. Sword ferns, lady ferns, bell flowers, and piper's lace. Evening stars and poison kisses. Liverwort, longwort, hornwort. Mushrooms sprouted down amongst the tree roots and from their trunks as well. Pale spotted hands that caught the rain. Other trees were furred with moss, green or gray or red-tailed, and once a vivid purple. Lichens covered every rock and stone. Toadstools festered besides rotting logs. The very air seemed green. And I just love that passage. One of the strongest things that Martin does in his writing is his descriptions of the, of the atmosphere around So, what he does really well, in my opinion, is the atmospherics. And And I don't mean to, to always crap on, on Grimdark, and I don't think that Emmett does as well. It's just that it, it, it has become kind of mainstay in fantasy fiction now where it has, in my opinion, and I'll let Emmett speak for himself, but I feel it has overwhelmed some of the romanticism that, that, is the root of fantasy. When you're talking about Tolkien's world, when you're talking about C.S. Lewis and others, there is that sense of romanticism that um, works. I, I think it should be the base from which all fantasy should grow from. Uh, obviously that can be taken too far and it can become, as, as Martin has talked about, it can just become Tolkien or C.S. Lewis clones and those aren't as good. Um, and that's something that Martin is rating The Song of Ice and Fire against. But I do love... Martin's description of the world here in this Ariane chapter, it's, 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 I, I can feel it. I can see the entire picture that Ariane is, is describing here. I can see the moss, the trees, the ferns, the flowers, and the very air seemed green. I, I can feel that, you know, it's a very visceral feeling that I get from this. And it all springs from my, in, in my opinion, it springs from Martin's romanticism and that kind of almost tokenesque description of the setting and the surroundings that the characters are going through. And I just, I, I love that. And I think that's just, fantastic good writing on martin's part and yeah i mean there's there's all sorts of other portions as well but that's just the the the, the passage side chose it is a bit longer i admit but I, I i do love that one a lot
1: i couldn't agree more it's a gorgeous passage uh it reminds me of uh appropriately enough of Brand's chapters in storm and dance in a lot of ways in terms of the, the nature imagery that you were describing there yeah and i think that's and I think that in terms of Martin's relationship to fantasy and what he loves about the genre and is trying to bring to the surface, uh, you know, nature imagery is really central to that. If you look at Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and a lot of the best in fantasy is about you know celebrating the, the countryside yes. and renewal and faith in nature and seasons and so forth. And uh, obviously that stuff, you can uh, soak the hell out of it for beautiful imagery. Oh, and Martin yeah. always does that well. And, and that passage is a, is a great example of it. Yeah, you said it, it's so cinematic – if it Feels like t- like Terrence Malick or something. You can almost see the cues. Like this is where you zoom in on like the pine needles. Yes. And you zoom out as the dragonfly comes in. It's like it's it's gorgeous stuff. And it's and it's appropriate. It's Arianne's entering this fairy taleish world of the prince from over the sea who has his perfect <laughs> backstory that you're not supposed to question. You know, it's <laughs> not too closely. It's, it's 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 exactly it's it's appropriate for what's what's going on in her story. So. It all it all fits. It's 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 a gorgeous passage.
0: Now, do you dislike grimdark as a form of, of writing in fantasy altogether, or is this something that you feel like, or do you or do you feel similar to me that it's a bit overdone in in some of the modern um the modern offerings of of fantasy writers that they they get to the grim dark side of it without capturing the romantic
1: i mean my favorite character is stannis like i can't pretend i don't have an attraction to the grim and dark <laughs> foreboding characters in the places of the world uh no i get i get the rush and the catharsis and just the you know there's it, it became the dominant tone of fantasy for a reason there there is there is a, a power and a heft to it you know, just with the gravelly voiceover and the growling—I just think of Warhammer. It's just sure you know, that aesthetic has has a definite appeal and can be done properly. I think. I think when Martin really brought out more than anything else was, look if you want if you want the the gut punch fear moments and the horror, if you want that to mean anything, you have to invest in the romanticism side. Otherwise, the big gut punch moments don't mean anything when they come. Right. Like if, if it's all stone and cold and dark forever, and everyone is as angry as Stannis, <laughs> then nothing. Then it doesn't. You know. It, then there's no drama. You need you need to have a, a bunch of different flavors in that stew to make to make everything work. Uh, you know the the red wedding only works because we care about Rob. It would be very very easy to make us not care about Rob. There's there's elements built into the story that could help us not care about Rob. He's a king. He's making war on. The Riverlands and a lot of peasants die on both sides. And we're presented with all these images of kings just being rapacious and peasants just being ordered to die. But we still have to have an emotional connection to Rob Stark for the moment when his mother watches him die to mean anything. And threading that needle is difficult, but I think that's what Martin's trying to do. And overall, I really appreciate the project for it. I think think that tone is is perfectly... I think that tone is exactly what the genre needs. No, I, I...
0: Agree, as per the norm, um, with you in that uh, I think that Martin mixes the grim dark with the romantic and fuses a, a really good story out of it because you do have characters like Stannis and you do have events like the Red Wedding, but you also have the North Remembers. You also have... You know, Lady Barbary Dustin telling the phrase. You know, all of these other Northmen died at the Red Wedding. The North remembers Frey. You know, these kinds of moments where um, you you do have to recognize that there is a a romantic undertone, uh, and not even an undertone, really, an overtone in in the story too that that, that works its way uh, throughout. Um, even though there are, there are definitely grim and definitely dark moments in A Song of Ice and Fire, they're there are there are other there are other moments of, of light in the story as well um, that I think that martin integrates in the, to bring a, a, a fuller and better story in my opinion
1: I think he captures well what it feels like to try to stick to your ideals in a reward in a world that's not going to reward you for it yeah I think he does a really good job of doing that with a lot of different characters over and over again uh, and I think getting that across means you have to pull from the full dramatic palette and I think obviously he's more comfortable in some areas than others, like any writer. But you don't you don't get the full breadth of a character like Stannis without Davos there to make you understand oh, yeah. what's going on beneath the surface. And I think that's that's you know what what you end up with uh, if you go if you go full grim dark is just a bunch of Stannises and Sandor's just sitting at a, sitting at the end growling to themselves and ultimately. That you know, just dramatically, that just doesn't amount to much.
0: I mean, this is the story where you have Victorian Greyjoy and and Davos Seaworth occupying the same narrative space. And so I think that uh, that I think that's a good summary of A Song of Ice and Fire, in, in my opinion, anyways. But um, but yeah, so uh, one of many, one of many. Uh, so thank you, Sir Rob, for the uh, for the question and for the discussion that it um, brought up. And with that, we will move on to the Game of Thrones Editor 2. I'll be doing a not-so-brief synopsis. The synopses are not getting any shorter, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective. um, Because these chapters are getting more and more complicated and complex and all these sorts of things. But we'll go into that. So, a not-so-brief synopsis. Tell them all about it, Jeff. I will. I will. Uh, So, a not-so-brief synopsis of A Game of Thrones Editor 2. Robert Baratheon wakes Eddard Stark from his dreams to go riding with him an hour before dawn. Ned encourages Robert to come inside his tent, but no, Robert is restless. He wants to explore the northern country. So Lord Eddard dresses, mounts his horse, and rides off with his king, Robert Baratheon. They rode in silence as dawn broke around them. When Robert finally stops, he exclaims, "'Gods, it feels good to get out and ride. The man was meant to ride.' He then complains about Cersei's carriage, jokingly threatening to burn the thing to the ground if it breaks one more axle. Robert then wistfully wonders whether he and Ned should take the road to sellswords swords and leave all of this behind. Robert brings up wenches and asks Ned for the name of, his bas- of Ned's bastard's mother. "'Her name was Wyla, and I would sooner you not speak of her,' Ned replies coolly." Robert presses Ned for more information, but Ned flatly refuses, claiming that he dishonored his marriage with Catelyn. Robert grumbles a bit, but he lets it slide for the moment. They ride on farther, and Ned points out mounds to Robert, and Robert wonders, are they in a graveyard? There are barrows everywhere in the north. This land is old, Ned replies. This short history lesson complete, Robert explains his reason for rousing Ned so early in the morning. Far as the spider, the master of whispers has sent word from King's Landing. Daenerys Targaryen has wed Khal Drogo. Ned asks for the source of this information. Do you remember Sir Jorah Mormont? Would that I might forget him. Ned replies. You see, Sir Jorah was once bannerman to Ned Stark, but he was caught selling poachers to slavers. As Jorah was a prominent member of, as Jorah was a prominent member of House Mormont, his crime was against all of the North. So Ned had taken it upon himself to ride out and bring justice to Sir Jorah. But before he could, Jorah fled across the Narrow Sea, and now he works for Varys as a spy, hoping to gain a royal pardon and return to Westeros. Anyways, Robert wants to send a hard knife after Daenerys and her brother Viserys, and this doesn't surprise Ned. He remembers back to the end of Robert's Rebellion when Tywin Lannister had presented Robert with the corpses of Rhaegar's wife and children. Ned called it murder. Robert called it war, stating that he didn't see children, only dragonspawn. This nearly ended Robert and Ned's friendship. And only the death of Lyanna Stark had reconciled them. But back to the present, Ned counsels caution, stating that Danny is only a girl. Robert counters with, this child will soon spread her legs and start breeding more dragonspawn to plague me. Ned and Robert then engage in a very similar argument from Robert's Rebellion. Is the murder of children ever justified? Ned says no. Robert says, yes. The argument builds and builds until Robert shouts, I will kill every Targaryen I can get my hands on until they are as dead as their dragons and then I will piss on their graves. Let no one call Robert unemotional about the Targaryens. Anyhow, Danny and Viserys are being sheltered by Illyrio Mopatis and Robert is unable to get them. And now Danny is married to Drogo. Robert fears the Dothraki will invade Westeros. Ned replies that the Dothraki hate and fear the open sea. Robert's fear of the Dothraki remains, and Ned uses this as an opportunity to try and persuade Robert to name Robert Aaron or Robert's brother Stannis, as Warden of the East. But Robert has named Jaime as his Warden of the East. Ned dislikes Jaime, and he has reason to. Not only does naming Jaime Warden of the East essentially put half of the armies of Westeros under Lannister control, there's a bit of history between Ned and Jaime, as Ned explains to Robert. Robert. During their completely, 100% justified rebellion against Eris Targaryen, Ned and his men marched to the Red Keep. There they found the II Targaryen dead and Jaime Lannister sitting high above everyone atop the Iron Throne. No one spoke until Jaime, Lannister, until Jaime laughed and told Ned that he was just keeping the seat warm for Robert. To Ned's chagrin, Robert thinks this is hilarious. His laughter booms. Finally, Robert kicks his horse and urges Ned to come with him. And for the first time, Ned wonders about the wisdom of what he was doing coming south instead of staying with Catelyn and Bran at Winterfell. A man could not always be where he belonged, though, Ned thinks glumly before writing after Robert. And that is a, again, not so short summary of A Game of Thrones Editor 2. Wow. I, uh, I love this chapter, man. I, I, I mean, I, I will say I, I love Bran too. It's it's great, but I, this chapter is just chock full of all the stuff that I love about the series. And yeah, I, I, I love this chapter, this is great.
1: Beautifully said, sir, I agree. I mean, I have similar thoughts about this in some ways to uh, Daenerys' second chapter in that whereas Ned's chapter, Ned's first chapter set the mood Set the, introduced the characters perfectly, introduced what the central political thrust is going to be for Ned going forward, being Robert Tanda the king. But that this is the chapter where you really start sinking into who these men are, yeah. what they mean to each other, how that's changed, what they want from each other now, and all the baggage they're bringing to the table. Cause this is, this is baggage colon the chapter <laughs> coming, com- coming back to it. There's the, the amount of like unprocessed stuff and, Grievous wounds from backstory that these two are bringing to the table. Uh, it's amazing, and that's one of the things I love about the uh, Game of Thrones specifically. The first book is how Martin builds in the backstories we've said before, and that really does stand out uh, strongly in this chapter. Yeah, for both uh, for both for both Ned and Robert in very different ways.
0: No, you're you're absolutely right. And again, this is another chapter where the backstory weaves itself in really, really well with contempt with contemporary events in the chapter itself, you know, you have just as an example, Jamie being Ned Warden of the East, which I'll talk about a little bit later, um, fits really well with Ned's suspicions of Jamie and the shared and the history that he has of seeing Jamie atop the Iron Throne with the Second dead, you know, underneath of him. And, uh, and and yeah, I, I do love that sense of, of living history that these, you know, you would, I think you and, and Steve Atwell had said, said previously that, uh, was it that civil wars never end exactly? Is that the, the phrase that you guys use?
1: Yeah, that was a quoting Stephen Atwell from his essay on Daenerys' first chapter in the Game of Thrones. Uh, yeah, that no civil war is ever over, no civil war is ever won. And you do feel that very strongly here that even, even though Robert won the damn war, he's just refighting it in his head over and over and over again. It's just never going to be done for him.
0: And it, to me, it reads like his emotions are still as potent here as they were 15 years prior to when he actually won the war itself and the II was dead. But he, you know, when he's talking about pissing on the graves of the Targaryens, you get a real sense that, you know, the, the past 15 years have not really cooled Robert's feelings about, about the, the Civil War. That he still is extremely bitter uh, about it, especially over his lost love. In, in Lyanna, I mean, using his own terminology, that's probably not actually true love. But uh, we can just talk about that at probably a later chapter.
1: The lost chivalric dream, the, sure. the dream of love, is, is what Robert lost out on, and you know, I don't. I think there's varying degrees of taking that seriously. Um, <laughs> which you can, everyone, everyone, everyone can take Robert Baratheon as seriously as they want to take him. Uh, I don't take him terribly seriously. No. But there is, there is, there is a sadness about the man I think is really interesting, especially as it relates to Ned. And yeah, this is a very character, as you can already tell from our discussion so far, this is ver- uh, very much more a character than plot-centric ep- episode Yes. and chapter. Uh, obviously, there are important plot details that do come up, as Jeff laid out, regarding uh, Danny and her marriage and a couple other ancillary characters we'll get into later. But first and foremost, this is about Edward Stark and Robert Baratheon. You know, this is this is how Robert thinks. This is how Ned thinks. This is how those thoughts bounce off each other. And they're... they're Easing into each other's new roles for the first time, they're not friends. They are. This is this is the king, and this is his hand, and they have to learn how to interact with each other in that regard. And they're they're kind of testing each other here. I mean, Robert, you know, for all that Robert Baratheon comes off like a complete buffoon, uninterested in kingship, whose best self died winning the crown, and now he's just a decaying, rotting, drunk husk. For all that he comes off that way there are moments rereading this chapter where you feel like he's a little more savvy than he's given credit for like maybe it's not an accident that he wanted ned just groggy and shook him out and took him out of nowhere to like get his first reaction to things yeah like maybe maybe robert is trying to get the sense of the guy who he loves and trusts but hasn't known for hasn't i mean hasn't seen for many years and is now put in a very powerful position and he's you know he's He's not wanting to be super comfortable when they, have their, when they have their first real political conversation. Part of me wonders, in other words, if Robert knows what Ned's going to say in this conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Robert, because the Robert-Ned relationship, rereading this chapter, starts to remind me very much of the stannis Davos relationship. Yeah. And that you have the Baratheon King who has this honorable guy and the, the, the Baratheon King is saying to the honorable guy, look, I know that this is a bad thing to do, what I'm about to do. I need you here to tell me that this is bad and maybe stop me from doing it. I'm still going to do it, but I need you here to pull me back from the brink, well, which I think is a really interesting, I, I think, I think, I think Stannis and Davos ultimately gets kind of more interesting and dramatic places with that relationship. Uh, but I do feel that dynamic really strongly with Ned and Robert here, that Robert sees Ned as this kind of. Almost like a Jiminy Cricket figure. Like, you're here to be my externalized conscious and tell me when I'm bad. That's what you're good at, Ned.
0: But the thing about it is that um, in the case of of Davos and Stannis, Stannis will turn away from Sacking Claw Isle and will sail north to the Wall to save the Night's Watch and save the realm from wildling invasion. Later on, we have the same conversation come up again after they find out that Daenerys is pregnant and Robert has sending his own cat's ball and assassin off to kill Daenerys and Viserys and Ned can do nothing to to dissuade Robert from his behavior. So it's almost, it's, it's interesting. You, you, Ned is a Jiminy cricket figure, but he's a Jiminy cricket figure. That's not, I I would say that Robert values his counsel, but won't necessarily turn back from something he's set on to be, in my opinion, anyways.
1: Oh, I agree. And you know, that, that comes up, uh, explicitly, when Ned has to throw his hand badge uh, at Robert's feet, and I believe that's his eighth of Game of Thrones chapter, where ultimately the stresses of the relationship are too much. But yeah, I agree that is that is a contrast between Robert and Stannis. There, I mean, Robert just has that anger against the Targaryens, that boiling hate that you were you were bringing up in your summary, and Stannis really doesn't have an equivalent to that. Stannis doesn't. I mean, Stannis hates everything, but he doesn't <laughs> hate things more or less. Like he's just got the same kind of iron sense. That he brings to, to, to pretty much everything he looks at. Yeah. So, he like, Davos has that great line when he's trying to get Edric Storm onto the boat and away from Dragonstone quickly. And he's telling Edric, "Do you want, Do you want, I, I'm going to go tell King Stannis if you don't do what I say. And he's going to get angry. You ever seen King Stannis angry? <laughs> I have. And he shows him the maimed hand. And he thinks to himself, that actually wasn't true at all. There was no anger in Stannis at all in that moment. Just an iron sense of <laughs> um, So good. Which is just great. I love it. But there. Are, uh, Stannis is like Judge Dredd in that way, where he's like both awesome and comical and awesome all at the same yes. time. But we'll get into that much more later. But uh, point being, yeah, that's Stannis, the kind of more burning, clean, iron sense of justice, or that's what he's aiming for anyway. With Robert, his emotions are much more given over to the kind of billowing anti targaryen hate you see seated in this chapter and then developed later on.
0: I'm fascinated by that anger that Robert has for the Targaryens. It's it's very it feels visceral, almost primal. And I and I do. I mean, I'm 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 curious about the about the the source of it. Uh, what what he's what is what is keeping this the, the fire burning, so to speak, in his mind? Is it just these lost memories and this? The loss of the romantic chivalric ideal, as you talked about, of Lyanna, is that is that what's keeping the fire burning, or is there something else at work here in in, in Robert?
1: That's a great question. I mean, I I'm, I'm, I lean towards the he's trying to recapture his lost youth <laughs> angle for for Robert as far as why he's reacting the way he does. I mean, this the chapter starts out that way, where he's as uh, the, the two of them, Ned and Robert, riding horses and. Uh, yeah, Robert has that great line, it feels good to get out and ride the way a man was meant to ride. You can just hear, I love Mar- uh, Mark Addy on the show. He just gets the Robert roar just right. Oh, yeah. Where everything Robert-, everything Robert Baratheon says is just a little too loud. You can feel just like the volume turned up too much on his mic, which is never appropriate. And you get you get that sense from his dialogue. Um, And you get the sense of Ned remembering, oh, right, I'm the quiet wolf. I'm the guy who ran by his side and kind of chuckled quietly at his jokes. <laughs> this is how things used to be. Right. Because, uh, yeah, he says he's going to uh, uh, burn the damn wheelhouse that's, that Cersei's been uh, creaking her way up the, the neck in. And uh, Ned, is, quote, is Ned laughed, I will gladly light the torch for you. Good man, the king clapped him on the shoulder. Like, you get this uh, the sense of, like, you're... Walking into uh, your parents' attic and blowing cobwebs away and getting dust off the old photo albums and stuff like they're—it's muscle memory between these two. Sure. Like learning how to be friends again, even though it's taking place under the shadow of their new relationship as king in hand and kind of the the thornier decisions they're going to be getting into. But yeah, I there's a lot of reasons Robert the way he is. But yeah, I, I would trying to recapture his lost youth. I think is the best explanation for no,
0: I like that. that anger. I, like that. I think he's.
1: He gets the sense that his best self, like he later says, Rhaegar, Rhaegar won. He, that's what he feels like deep down. And he feels so angry at the Targaryens that he, he gave up his best self and his best days to beat them. And at some level, they ended up with what he really wanted. And now he's he's just left. I mean, there's there's, there's such a strong connection between in this chapter and elsewhere when he feels good. Is, is like you know, he says you know, being out on the horse, and when he's when he's in bed, and when he's in battle, like that's when he feels alive. When he's out out doing stuff, uh, and that's connected to being young and athletic and in your prime, and not a guy in his thirties who's starting to you know get the sags under the eyes and a few pounds too many, and can't drink quite like he used to, and can't ride quite like he used to, and and now but now he's got his best friend from youth back, so he can feel like the young days again, and we can go out riding like we used to, and. You know that's again. There's there's a there's a limit to how sad I can feel for Robert given the sure. decisions he's made, but you do you do feel for him uh, when it comes to stuff like that. I think.
0: I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, some when I when I go out with my college friends. I, there was a, there was a time we went out about six or seven months ago, and it was kind of like we were like bar hopping like around Baltimore and. It was great and it was a lot of fun, but at the same time, like we all went home to our wives and children, you know, after that. So, uh, you know, it's, it's we can only recapture only a little bit of what we were like 15 years ago. God damn it. It's been 15 years since I've been in college. Uh, we are. We are that old. That's true. <laughs> it's true. Um, but but yeah, it's, uh, it's it's interesting, though, that he that Robert is so angry about Rhaegar Targaryen, about the Second Targaryen, and he's willing to send a hard knife, as he says, after Daenerys just for marrying a, a, a Dothraki horse lord. But there's someone else who has a knife almost at his throat at this juncture, and he doesn't seem at this juncture to be that aware of what's going on under the surface in his own court.
1: That's true. That's the other kind of frustrating thing with Robert, I mean, deliberately on the author's part, but just frustrating about him as, as a person is that he's got this intense paranoia about the Targaryens and like, I've already made my decision. It's worth worth the cost. I'm going to have the knife after them. Uh, he's got all, you know, he's listening to his intelligence. He's, he's acting as like a you know, as, as a head of state does when, when, there's, when there's an urgent issue. But when it comes to the Lannisters, he's like a resentful child that has to be told, like, maybe you shouldn't. I mean, Ned has to just like so carefully talk to him, like, maybe you shouldn't be letting these obvious assholes take over the entire government. Like he, I mean, that's... That's true. something we touched on before, but we'll get into as we go along that Ned starts to realize that he and Robert have very different ideas about of what Robert's rebellion was about. Yeah, and that comes to the, that comes to the force so much in this chapter when Ned's saying, you know, that Jamie's swore Jamie's uh, killing Eris uh, tainted the throne that Robert sits on, and for Robert it's just like someone had to do it. What I was <laughs> going to be king, and clearly Eris had to go. And there's and there's of course there's definitely a truth to that. Yeah. Uh, but it, it kind of it kind of sullies what the the ideals that Ned clearly cares about, and then for Robert it seems we're we we're, we're more means to an end. You can kind of just tell that Robert doesn't care about those higher ideals because he's let the Lannisters corrupt the government so thoroughly, yeah, and because he's let Littlefinger run up the debts, and because uh, he's hasn't he doesn't realize that when Renly brings up Marjorie that maybe he should wonder what Renly's got going on, yeah. like he, you know he's. He's, he's just not aware. the the only threat he can focus on is is the Targaryens. I, ironically, the most distant of threats, Right. The one that's the most only only looming in this book, the one that will trouble him. As Ned says, "This is a shadow of a threat, half a world away." Uh, there, you know, there are knives at the door that he's just not paying attention to.
0: There's a bit of dramatic irony in that Robert's paranoia over the Targaryens eventually leads him to sending. a a hard knife after Daenerys and Viserys. And this causes the Dothraki and Khal Drogo to be like, ah, we will go to Westeros and we will rape our way through the country and kill thousands and all these things. So Robert's paranoia it, it doesn't obviously manifest itself or at least it hasn't yet in the story manifested itself out but it, it probably will at some point down the road um, but it, there is that sense of irony that robert lets his own paranoia make a not a not real threat a real legitimate threat come down the road towards as we, we travel towards the end of a game of thrones
1: you're exactly right he he brought it about i mean it's set up so perfectly in that danny chapter that she was getting nowhere with drogo in terms of persuading him to turn to westeros until the assassination attempt. So, yeah, you couldn't, couldn't come up with a more beautifully poetic meditation on the folly of retribution in man's violent ways leading to violent ends than that. It's, it's, yeah. it's a it's a really perfect setup. But, yeah, what you said about, uh, about hanging out with your college buddies then going home to the wife and kids at the end of the night, that's that stuck with me because that's really the problem here is that Robert can't. Yeah. Because when he goes home to his wife and kids, he's miserable with it. Yes. Like he's talking about the wheelhouse and how much he hated being in that damn wheelhouse with Cersei – and that's the other part of Robert's, like, self-loathing and hatred of everything that's happened since he took the crown is that he ended up with Cersei. Yeah. Which, I mean, this, again, this is not to remotely excuse what Robert does to Cersei. No. But I understand being unhappy married to Cersei Lannister. Anyone would. <laughs> yeah. So, she's just a nightmare. So, <laughs> there is uh, there, so there a sense, like, Robert can't can't embrace a grown-up self because he doesn't have what Ned has, which is an organic, loving relationship with someone he got to know and trust over time, and who, with whom he has children that they both adore. Like, that's that's the ideal, and that and Robert just doesn't have it, and is, it never has it, and he has the grand irony of the kids, kids around him that he thinks are his but are not, and the kids that are his but he doesn't even pay attention to that are just scattered all over the kingdom, and it's yeah, it's just kind of this, this wretched portrait of a man who you just feel him throughout this chapter and the whole book, just grasping at what he had in the past and the life he had with his friend. It's just all gone. It's all all decayed.
0: Yeah, it is that. Um, one of the, the again interesting things about that relationship is that they, that Ned and and Robert are clear contrast in personality in appearance. You know, Ned is seems at least as we can tell to be physically fit. He's not overweight, he's soft-spoken, he's not yelling at at his friend, as far as we can tell in this chapter. Um, it's almost like that Ned was born to restrain Robert, uh, or at least born narratively, so to speak, to restrain Robert. And, the, and they, they, the contrast works well in their relationship here in this chapter.
1: Totally. I mean, there's that great Robert line about, yeah, you were never the boy you were, when Ned's saying that's why they can't run off and, and leave Cersei behind, because they're not the boys they were. and Robert, Robert says that, you know, Ned was never really – there was never really that spring for Ned except maybe at Harren Hall with shower, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> like there was never – there's like, you know, that image of Robert and all his – the glory of youth and the, the laughter in his eyes and, the, you know, as he strode out to be a perfect m- maiden's muscled fantasy god prince that he was <laughs> – like, Ned, Ned never really had that, you know, no. in his youth. He never really had that moment where I feel like this is my prime. This is why I live. You know, he, he didn't have the glory days that Robert is pining for. His relationship to his past is just much more horrifying than that. Yes. Like, even much sadder. And, and that's the contrast we get into with this chapter is Robert Brath, You think you've got ghosts. Just look at Ned Stark over here. His dead sister constantly whispering in his ear as he tries to keep his his her bastard son safe from you. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I completely agree. That is the relationship as it's set up here. Is that Robert, you know, bellows into the wind, and Ned taps him on the shoulder and whispers in his ear. Right. You know, Robert acts and and the hand, you know, the hand restrains. Yeah. Um, And that you know he's. you can kind of see again to bring up the bring up Stannis as we're wont to do. <laughs> this is the this is the chapter where we first uh, get one of many hints that uh, Ned holds Stannis in extremely high esteem. He brings up Stannis as the obvious choice for warden of the East uh, in place of Jaime. So already you get the sense that Ned kind of is thinking of Stannis as like almost like a fallback yeah. and his automatic ally if things go south against the Lannisters. Um, and that's interesting because. You know, Stannis is, is himself the comparatively quiet wolf of the Baratheon clan. You can oh, transpose yeah. the Stark and Baratheons of that generation pretty easily. You've got the 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 wild wolf of Brandon, contrasted with uh, or paralleled rather with Robert, and then you've got Ned and Stannis as the as the second older brother, the kind of more quiet and colder one, but ultimately kind of more true to their duty. And then you've got uh, Benjamin and Renly as the pups. Interesting. Um, and I think you can you can see that. Uh, I mean, there's the great line from the show about that Robert says that Ned was the brother he chose, and you do kind of get the sense that like Ned is a Ned is a version of Stannis that Robert gets along with and can talk to yeah. without just wanting to without without both of them just wanting to kill each other by the end of the conversation, which is how it seems like it went with Robert <laughs> and Stannis most of the time.
0: You know, it's it's, it's always funny to me. I, I think the the contrast between Ned and, and Stannis Stannis that they do have similar personalities, but where Stannis will be like, well, well Robert will be like. I'm going to give Storms End to Renly Stannis to be like, you can't do that. I'm sorry, that's just not right. You you can't do that, Robert. Whereas Ned would be like, hey, Bob, let's 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 talk about this for a little bit. Let's let's kind of reason through this. Let's go through the history of Storms End. Whereas Stannis is like, that's just wrong. You just you can't do that, man.
1: Just the rules. The rules aren't that. I mean, I love Stannis because he's like. The kid at the family gathering who has, like, memorized the inside of the top of the Monopoly case where all the rules <laughs> right. are, and, like, he's going to bring out some weird ninja shit on you about how the bank actually works. That's Stannis, and that's – he's adorable for that reason. But, yeah, he's just – yeah, Ned is much – Ned is, you know, not certainly not the best politician on Song of Ice and Fire, but Ned is – Ned knows how to handle Robert and how to kind of shape him and and – not necessarily bend him to his will, but he knows how to argue with him. He knows, like, okay, here's how I phrase this properly, so Robert will listen to it. Where Stannis is just, Stannis just says it, which is that Stannis' appeal, but that's not going to work on Robert because Robert, as right. uh, Cersei said, likes to be surrounded by smiles. That's right. Which is his strength and weakness. It
0: is. Um, but there is someone that is a very astute politician in Robert's court, and that is the character of Varis the Spider, who gets his first mention. In this chapter. And, and I, I got to say, Varys is one of my favorite characters in The Song of Ice and Fire. So I have been rubbing my hands waiting for us to finally get to Varys here in *In*, in A Song of Ice and Fire. But I will let you open with opening thoughts on Varys, and I will come right in after.
1: I'll agree. I look forward to yours already, sir. Uh, yeah, this is Robert has a very interesting line here when. Ned invites him into the tent at the beginning of the chapter to go over these affairs of state, and Robert says, no, they want to write out because, quote, the camp is full of ears. Now, of course, Robert also just wants to write out because, again, he's trying to reconnect to his youth and his athleticism and his relationship to Ned, but it's also telling that uh, that Varys is introduced kind of in this context of Ned is entering the world of King's Landing where everyone's spying and everyone else and everyone's an informant and everyone has conspiracies and secret plans. Uh, and, and no one uh, embodies that world more than the Master Whispers, even more than Littlefinger. Varus just is that world, yeah. Uh, and and uh, it's it's very appropriate that he's first brought up in the context of of information gathering and intelligence work. And this is this is the news that Varus has brought us from Essos, and that's and it's double layered And this is the news we're getting from Varus in King's Landing of the, you know you can you can just like since the Indiana Jones lines on a map, like you know the message came from Essos to Varys and King's Landing and that was going out to the king on the on the way back and this is that's you can already see the web forming that Varys is at the center of so it's it's a perfect perfect way to introduce not even him but just the idea of him into the narrative.
0: So what I am really like fascinated by is the way that Varys filters information especially from Essos to the small council and to the king. We get a very clear picture Throughout a Game of Thrones, or I I guess especially when we get into a Dance of Dragons, we find out that Varez is clearly the one who's been working with Illyrio the whole time. Although you can pretty easily make that connection from the Aria chapter where she sees Varez and Illyrio conspiring in, in the Red Keep dungeon. All that aside, uh, I, I was – there's a line from this chapter that made me kind of think a little bit where, where Robert says, I can't get to this guy, or rather, I can't get to Daenerys and Viserys. Some Pentoshi merchant is, is shielding them and shepherding them and keeping them safe. How much of that is Varas being like, oh, your grace – I'm so sorry. We just can't get to Illyria. We we just can't get into Illyrio's Mance. It's just impossible for for my for us to do that. We've tried so many times to find a way in, and it's just impossible, Your Grace. We just can't do it. I'm so sorry. You know, it, it's it, you get this. I, I get this picture in my mind now, having read the books and watched the show, and um, really grooving in on Vara's a lot, and and really enjoying his character. That Vara's here is. Very much filtering and editing the information that Robert is receiving, and making it in such a way that you know Robert can't act because he can't act because he Varys at this point in the story, he needs Daenerys to go out and marry the and marry Caldrogo and bring a Dothraki Targaryen unit together for purposes that are still at even at this even by the end of A Dance of Dragons are a little bit unclear whether it's. They're supposed to all join together the Golden Company, invade Westeros together, or whether they're, Varys and Olyria had something else at work. I tend to favor the second option of those two. But I, I do think that Varys here is being like, we can't get to Daenerys because he doesn't he – that doesn't gel with his plan, his eventual plan to – to bring the Dothraki to Westeros in some fashion, to take on Robert at this point in the, in the story, or take on Robert's successors, whoever is going to be in, in the place of Robert, uh, Robert here. So yeah, I, I I I love Varys's introduction here, and I love having that fuller portrait around Varys that gives us a um, a sense of who he is and a sense of how this guy. Manipulates and uses information, makes himself seem vital, which I think it's something that Cersei tells Tyrion in A Clash of Kings, and then, uh, but yeah, but just manipulating people and using information is that almost as his dagger to uh, to to use in the in the political knife fighting that goes on in King's Landing.
1: Perfectly said. Intelligence is varus's weapon. You see him use that over and over again uh, in this book with uh, with Ned in A Clash of Kings uh, with Tyrion. And then again, with Tyrion at the end of a storm of swords, and yeah, it's interesting that kind of Ned is now entering this orbit where you have all these all these people fencing with each other in King's Landing, and he's again he's just he's just kind of trading into these deeper waters. So Littlefinger has already started manipulating him, but he doesn't know that, and we don't know that, and we haven't met Littlefinger yet. But the the, the ripples of his actions have already begun within the narrative, and we haven't met Varus yet. But already the kind of just the kind of things his story will be about have already been brought to the fore. Like as before you even meet him, you already know he's involved with the the question of the Targaryens returning from Essos and what Westeros does about it. And that's what virus's character is about to the core. As far as we know, from uh, what we've gotten uh, five books in so far yeah. that he's kind of obsessed with making that happen for what seems like a variety of reasons. <laughs> and, uh, uh, much, much more to be debated when we get to the epilogue to a dance with dragons. Can't wait. Coming soon to use Yes, right, uh, year
0: twenty twenty three.
1: But yeah, more than anything else in this chapter, it's it's there to it's there for atmosphere to again lend the sense that Ned is 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 wandering into a complicated and sticky situation from which there will be no easy exit.
0: Right, right. You're you're absolutely right, and in, in that it does it, it starts to widen our 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 lens in of the political world of King's Landing because there wasn't any mention of Master Whispers before Vars is brought up here and yeah, it, it, it's definitely it's it's world building, but it's world building with a purpose that's going to serve a narrative function as we progress in as Ned progresses into King's Landing. But the uh, the news that Varys brings back is or Varys communicates rather to Robert is interesting. He the the intelligence he shares is that Danny has wed, Khal Drogo, and this provides a vantage point for uh, Ned to go into his own head to get kind of bring us a little bit of Jor, Sir Jorah Mormont's backstory.
1: Yeah, I love that part of the chapter when uh, Ned is just uh, – has has n- not not the slightest bit of uh, interest in what Jorah Mormon has to say about anything <laughs> ever, uh, which, which I love. Um, because I, I mean, I love that because I love why, which is that uh, Jorah was a slaver. Yes. And uh, sold, sold peasants into slavery to pay the bills, and Ned thinks that's horrible, and Ned's correct. That's absolutely correct. So uh, – uh, and, and that's we've talked on before. I mean, it, that's for me the lingering legacy of Ned Stark, and, and the reason people are willing to fight and die for his children, is because of stuff like that. You know, that the guy who brought his servants to dinner and who was willing to cut off a nobleman's head because he sold peasants into slavery. You know, that's that, that that's what that's what sticks about Ned Stark for me, and that comes up in this chapter when he's, uh, you know, both he and Robert are arguing about. People they want dead, but you know Ned wants Dora dead for these clear uh, ideological reasons that I I think are they're just largely admirable. they're just they're just exactly um and they they're, and they're just with an eye they're, they're just in a way that even the best medieval nobles tend not to be right. it's 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 just with an eye towards the the downtrodden yeah and just with an eye towards the people who get uh you know caught beneath the churn of the hooves when it comes to war. I mean, Jor himself says it later, hypocritically enough, that, you know, the common folk just want to be left alone. Uh, and Ned seems like one of the few lords who gets that at a bone deep level uh, in a way that, that that most of them don't. Well, it's it, um, And it doesn't. It, yeah, go ahead. No,
0: it's, it's, you know, again, to bring back that example that we brought back. A couple times, Ned's the guy who brings his cook to to have dinner with him. Brings the guy who shoes his horse, who makes his weapons. Brings the rednecks of the north, the Flint's, the Norries, the Bucks, all of these folks who are the Northern Mountain clansmen into Winterfell and feasts them. And uh, he goes out and visits them. Like that's the kind of guy that Ned is. And he's also the guy that when one of his most powerful bannerman. I mean, the Mormons, I would say, are, are a powerful bannerman of the Starks, does something that is clearly evil when selling people into slavery, Ned's going to take ice out there and, and bring justice to a wrongdoer. He's not going to entrust the Glovers, or he's not going to entrust someone else to do a task that is clearly his. Now, of course, as as I think I've said once before. There are obviously some local crimes and things that Ned's not going to write out to every single person who's done wrong in the north. But for, for Jorah, Jorah is a prominent nobleman in the north that Ned had known. I mean, Jorah was, was in Robert's Rebellion on the northern side. It's one of the things that's brought up as he was at the Trident. And that's it's a personal affront that Jorah was selling Northmen, Westerosi, into slavery and Ned's going to be the guy that's going to bring justice to him because he deserves the justice that Ned is that Ned is bringing um, out there, and he's doing it because he loves his people, and he's the guy that's that will eat with the 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 lowliest person in the north and feast them, and that's uh, it's great. Because again, it's another example of who Ned Stark is, and and what House Stark represents to the whole of the North.
1: Absolutely, and it's. It shows an interest in the qualities and aspects of leadership that Robert has showed no interest. Yes, in. like this is that's the stuff that Robert doesn't want to do and doesn't care about is get into the nitty gritty of what's going on with your people and what's going on with your vassals and, like I know the throne hurts under your seat, Robert, and he, everyone comes at you with their complaints, but that's the that's what the job right. is. If you're doing it, if you're doing it right just riding off to conquer towns is what the job is if you're doing it wrong That right. I mean, gets back to stannis and claw isle like we were getting at earlier like just going off to reap and rave the small folk because they bend the knee to someone else that's what you do if if you're being a horrendous king right and to, to be very clear the fact that ned stark has a strong sense of, of of duty doesn't mean that therefore feudalism is awesome like you know noblesse oblige was a thing <laughs> But like you know, we, we we valorize guys like Ned because they're the exception, right? 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 Um, but it does. I mean, it's 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 the balance, the careful balance. I think Martin is trying to to create, to, to strike a careful balance here, where he's giving a fairly pitiless systemic critique of of Westeros as a whole. I mean, there's that image from the House of the Undying as as the the four then living kings. It's just a. Uh, uh, people attacking a, a naked woman representing Westeros. Yes. Um, but on the, but on the other hand, there is a, a sense of real passion for the people within that system who still managed to give a damn. I mean, that is a classic example. Ed Muir is as well with uh, my people. They were afraid or ultimately Stannis with uh, uh, one of those birds found Dragonstone and a king who still cared. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's that, there's that, that strong stuff that you can really find in a character like Ned. And I think ultimately, Ultimately, that's lacking from Robert. Not that he has no interest in, in justice at all, as we'll see when he ultimately takes back the order to, to kill Danny on his deathbed. But that with Ned, like that's what's driving him. And with Robert, like for Ned, it, like the banners were furling and unfurling in the breeze behind Robert. <laughs> and that stirred his heart because it meant something. Yeah. Like the banners were symbolic. And he's, he's starting to realize, oh, for Robert, oh, no, that wasn't symbolism for Robert. That was the whole thing,
0: right? Right. The
1: banners flapping in the breeze, and it was beautiful. And the songs were on the lips, like that wasn't capturing an era in which we won the crown. That's what life was supposed to be,
0: which isn't the and case. He just hasn't
1: woke. Which isn't the case, and he just life is not a song, sweetly. Yeah. Uh, and and Robert just kind of hasn't hasn't woke back up from that ever since. Um, and you can you can, I think it's just it's an interesting contrast, uh, Robert. Wanting to kill Daenerys because of these ghosts from his past and the rage they still inspire, versus Ned wanting to uh, execute Jorah because of the best in him. I think it's as we've been as we've been teasing out. It's two very different models of kind of leadership and oh, yeah. justice on hand here, and um, you know, different different ways of struggling with the same questions.
0: Well, the thing about it too is that the. Um, the, uh, the 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 way you described it is, is is really good about that the banners flapping the song singing him striking, Rhaegar Targaryen in the breast in the breastplate with his great war hammer. that's the entirety of Robert's rebellion to him uh, but it's also uh, that that idea of Rhaegar striking Rhaegar though it's do it's it still burns hot in Robert because Rhaegar in his mind. Rhaegar won, damn it! You know because he because he he got away with with uh, with Liana in in the story, and uh, he's still angry fifteen years after the fact, and and that that's something that has a real impact on Ned and, and sends Ned spiraling emotionally in his own subconscious and maybe bringing up things that he has tried to intentionally suppress for many, many years, 14 years, as as he says in this chapter, he's had to live with lies for 14 years. And I I think that's a really interesting aspect of this chapter about how Robert and Ned coming together surfaces memories that Ned has tried so hard to keep from coming to the surface in order to save an innocent. That innocent, of course, being Jon Snow.
1: Exactly right, yeah, I mean, that is the, that's really the payoff for uh, for all that uh, wistful romantic stuff about trying to recapture the past. Is that uh, for Ned, that past is is Lyanna and her bed of blood and the promises he made at the Tower of Joy. And when Robert, you know, yells at Ned that I will get kill every Targaryen I get my hands on. For Ned, that's just John Snow flashing across yes. his face uh, every time Robert says that, and he's just hearing Lyanna's words in his ear, and there's just blue petals on the breeze, and he's, he's completely... He's, just, he's back in that room. So yeah, you have both Robert and Ned in that moment just reliving Robert's rebellion, and Robert is still fighting it in his head, and Ned is still reeling from what he's lost. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, of course it comes up explicitly in this chapter. This is the... Uh, chapter where we get Ned's cover story uh, from his own mouth about about whence Jon Snow Uh, yes it fits in their characters perfectly because uh, Robert's pointing out that as I said earlier Ned was never the boy you were and was teasing him about that one time that he broke his composure and took someone who wasn't his wife to bed and ended up with a bastard out of it and you get the sense that this is a kind of a big deal for Robert. This is his one area where his his quiet, honorable friend slipped up, and this is this is an area of intense interest for Robert. <laughs> this is the area which, because this is this is the one time Ned did a Robert thing, right? You know, he just you know got swept up with some woman, and fathered a bastard. That's Robert's thing that he does. So you get the sense Robert is just it's it's it breaks your heart because he's so kind of like. Childlike in his curiosity, and he's so like just kind of adolescent. Like, he's again trying to get that buddy relationship back with Ned. Like, tell me, let's share sex stories. Tell me about <laughs> that woman. You never told me about her. But it's just at cross purposes because for Ned, that's just not what this backstory is at all. No. Like, this is not a sweet, fun. Glory days for him, it's it's just trauma and secrets. Mm-hmm. So his defensive mechanisms just just spike immediately. Like you said in your summary, he just brings up he says the name Wyla and tries to move on as quick as he can.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's 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 fascinating to me that uh that 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 whole thing um, that Ned is is so quickly trying to be like it her name's Wyla and I dishonored Catelyn. Um, which is really fascinating to me because Catelyn doesn't feel that the dishonor came in Ned fathering a bastard, because remember when we talked about in Catelyn's chapter, um, Catelyn's second chapter, where she thinks to herself... Many men fathered bastards. Catelyn had grown up with that knowledge. It came as no surprise to her in the first year of marriage to learn that Ned had fathered a child on some girl Chance met on campaign. He had a man's needs, after all, and they had spent that year apart. Ned off at war in the south while she remained safe in her father's castle at Riverrun. So Catelyn basically is saying, you know, the, the real stain is that Ned brought his bastard home and called his bastard his son for the entirety of the North to see Not that he had a bastard, but then we get Ned's perspective here and Ned's story to Robert, which we can pretty safely assume is a bit of a, well, it is not a bit. It's a a lie on on Ned's part. Um, We should be taking a look at what Ned is saying here about Wyla and about him dishonoring Catelyn and contrasting that with Catelyn saying that, no, the dishonor isn't in men fathering bastard. The dishonor is in bringing your bastard home and calling him son. And we should be saying that something it, something else is going on here, that there's something else at work in our mind. And, of course, that something else is Rhaegar and Lyanna equals Jon Snow, of course, which is something we've talked about over and over again these early chapters because they provide – uh, the bulk of the evidence for R plus L equals J uh, in the first 12 chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire, it's pretty much the the entirety of the R plus L equals J. I think we can probably base John's parentage on this from just these first 12 chapters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire.
1: I agree. It adds a whole another dimension to this chapter when you come at it with R plus L equals J in the forefront of your mind. because. As as we said, it really explains uh, Ned's reaction to Robert's anti Targaryen hatred. It lends a it lends a great great bitter irony to the whole backstory that they went to war to get rid of House Targaryen, but then one of them has kept the potential heir to House Targaryen safe this entire time. Yes. Uh, and there's that that you know, and that, that dovetails so beautifully with everything in this chapter about about lost backstories and about youth that's vanished into the mists of time and. And that, I think you're right. I think it works. It's a great contrast with Catalin because what's refreshing and interesting about Catalin is what a realist she is. Yes. Which is not to say she doesn't make huge mistakes, but they are mistakes made on incorrect realist reads of the situation. Correct. Like she, it's she has not not enough information and trusts the wrong people. But she isn't. She, her head is never in the world of of stories and songs. And she's like none of the stuff Ned and Robert have about the youth that they was was taken from them. And they want they want back. Catelyn has no time for any of that. Good. No, <laughs> she's, she's she's very she's very much focused on the present, and she she treats her past like it's. Like Catelyn treats her past like it's a series of file cabinets. She just opens and finds the folder at will and plucks out the memory she needs. And there's the the, the intense trauma that Ned has of flashing back that's not there with Catelyn. And I think I think we are meant to realize that something doesn't quite add up here. That Ned's cover story seems very much like that—a cover story. It's just designed to for deflection and to avoid further inquiries. And it's kind of weird that he's not sharing more with Robert, and it does seem intentionally off with everything else that's happening. And when you contrast that, especially with this official explanation of Wyla, but then the prominence of a Dane being brought up in Catalan 2 and how Ned reacted to that, we're I think we're already supposed to get a sense that there are multiple stories competing here, yes. which means probably that none of them are true. Yes, if, if they're all being, if they're all kind of competing for each other, and one is contradicting the other, then maybe all of them are smokescreen. And the reality is, 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 hiding underneath. And then you
0: get the Fisher, the Fisherman's wife from uh, Davos one from a dance of dragons where you have, uh, yes. Is it is it Godric or, or Godro? Is it Godric Barrow? Godric Barrow. Godric right? anyway, Yeah. I kind of fuck up those names. That's kind of my, my thing on this, in this podcast, um, where he's saying like, Oh, well, you know, Jon Snow is the, uh, the son of a of Ned Stark and, and a fisherman's daughter. So, yeah. So, you have those three competing narratives. And uh, as we, as hashtag elite book readers know, that all three of the narratives are incorrect and wrong. And, and, you know, I do wonder whether there's something like Ned is practicing in front of his mirror for 15 years. The story that he's going to tell Robert, if he ever encounters Robert and Robert asks him about his bastard, like, oh, I, I dishonored Catelyn. No, that one didn't work. I dishonored honored catelyn
1: you know like you know how you do like in- yeah absolutely robert's never gonna buy that catch right one more time right. or like he's you can imagine him practicing in front of the heart tree uh, <laughs> right. in the godswood i would love i would love brand to, to see that through the Winterfell heart tree's eyes it's just ned rehearsing his cover story speech he almost sees that i mean brand sees through the Winterfell heart tree he sees ned praying clearly right after returning home about hoping that uh, that John and Rob Gropes' closest brothers and that Catelyn will find it in her heart to forgive him. Um, so yeah, I would I would, uh, lo- yeah, love to see more of a, of Ned's uh, stressful cover story routine. Because, I mean, that's, like you said, he's been living his lives for 14 years. That's that's so much kind of the tragedy of Ned Stark is he really, he built everything in his life around holding on to this secret as, as long as he possibly could. Um, and now we're left with his bones. I do love... Uh, you know the image—the image of Robert Ned riding out into the graves. <laughs> yeah. me As I was rereading this chapter, because that is again, you can see, see the coffin being framed around Ned Stark's head there.
0: Oh yeah, for absolutely absolutely sure. Um, so yeah, that was a that was a great conversation about this chapter. Really got in depth on there. We'll, we we got a little bit more in store down the road. Um, but I wondered if we might transition into more of our kind of our likes and dislikes, the kind of things that we generally liked about this chapter. Maybe there are specific things. I, I have one specific thing that I dislike about this chapter. Um, but yeah, I, I figured I would, I would toss over to you to talk about your likes and dislikes of this chapter.
1: Sure. Well, something we've obviously touched on quite a bit is the relationship between uh, Ned Stark and Robert. It feels very lived in and very much, it's rich with evoked history. Like, you know, they don't, it doesn't stop for just paragraphs to detail what they were like as kids with each other. Martin is generally more deft with his backstory than that. You just get a get an easy sense of how they were as kids and how things have changed just from the way they're talking to one another. Yeah. And there's the sense of how it's like built over time. Like there's the, the the flashback Ned has to the when Tywin presented Rhaegar's children, the corpses, to the newly made King Robert, uh, and and Ned's uh, and Ned's fury about that, which of course is linked to his his desperate attempt to save Danny and Jon Snow and Cersei's yep. children from Robert. Um, that, that that had been almost the end of their friendship when, when they had fought over Tywin killing Rhaegar's children or having them killed and then there's this quote this time Ned resolved to keep his temper your grace the girl is scarcely more than a child you are no Tywin Lannister to slaughter innocence. Hmm. so I mean one almost gets the sense that Ned feels like this is his second shot right like, like everything everything went wrong with how Robert's Rebellion ended in his mind like we, we had the right cause we were fighting we were going to do it right and then at the end, all we were left with was my dead sister and dead children. Yeah. Uh, and and this, now we're going to do it right. I've come here to, to make good on the promises we made to ourselves in the room 15 years ago. And it's it can't end with dead children again. It just can't. Please don't let it end that way again. Yeah. And you see that kind of desperation take over his head as the, as the book goes on. But early on, it's just rooted in the conversational dynamics between between Robert and Ned and that immediate sense of, you know, Ned is there to restrain Robert and pull him back. It doesn't always work, but that's what Robert wants him there for. And he has to learn how to kind of like the way he talks about Robert is kind of like riding the peaks and valleys of his anger and knowing when it's going to crest and just, you know, fall back for a bit and then jump in. Right. I love that's the stuff I really love in this chapter is, is is their dynamic and how easily Martin kind of folds the bigger themes into their conversation. Oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah, uh, for sure. I, you know, my, my like is very similar and that I, I love Ned and Robert's. Uh, dynamic and especially their memories. I I love how Martin blends the memories that Ned and Robert have and they share with events that are happening in the current time in the story. And I think that's a really great way that he writes it. Uh, I you know the other thing, I I've, I point out examples in the Tyrion John chapters where I, I didn't feel like that Martin was at his best in writing, but uh, here uh, as I talked as I referenced in the uh, alluded to in the uh, intro, I, I love Martin's description of them riding through uh riding through the Barrowlands. it says quote the rising sun sent fingers of light through the pale white mists of dawn like wow that is some freaking awesome writing right there george like that's stuff that again is that kind of visceral way of writing that i can picture the entire scene it creates a an enormously satisfying word, uh, mind picture, a, a picture in my mind at least uh, of what of what's going on, but what Ned is witnessing here, and I I, ju- I just love that um, that dynamic there.
1: Yeah, it's great. It's these painting and watercolors in that moment for sure. You can you can see the image so vividly laid out before you, which is good because I mean it's mostly a conversation about you know dialogue and, and larger issues. It's not. Not like a brand chapter or a Danny chapter where the imagery is at the forefront. Right. Uh, so getting a nice little a nice little hint of that just to set the scene is, is is exactly appropriate and just right. It does. I mean, my 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 one small dislike of the chapter besides uh, uh, besides yours, which we'll get we'll get into <laughs> in a second, uh, is that it's like the North is kind of an abstraction at this point. Like we're talking, you know, Knight's talking about his land and Robert brings up his people that they're all hiding, and it's like. It's, it's just kind of assumed we don't – like something I like about the later books is how really richly Martin gets into the north and yes. all the different kinds of people who are there and what they wanted the Starks and what the Starks give back. And you get into that with Bran as kind of a prince presiding over the Harvest Feast and the Clash of Kings when everyone comes to Winterfell uh, to, to, to kneel and also ask for stuff because that's how politics works even in feudalism. You, you kneel and then you ask for stuff. Right. Uh, and then you get into into dance, which we've touched on earlier in the episode, and the North remembers, and the kind of the 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 realm kind of rallying behind Ned's children. And at, at this point, um, the North is just kind of a backdrop. Yeah, it's it's just kind of there, which is perfectly fine. That's appropriate enough for the, for the purposes it serves in this chapter. Oh, yeah. uh, it does it does make me like I don't you know. Ned's relationship to his land is something we have to be told about mostly through backstory, like stuff with him taking, like, you know, going off to the head It's not by necessity. It's not something the Ned relationship, Ned relationship, the North is not something we actually get to see that much of it's, it's not, it's, it's mostly kind of a structuring absence as compared to like brands relationship to the North, which we spend a lot of direct present day information.
0: I mean, you have to get the, uh, I think it's probably intentional Martin's part, especially given that, um, you know, this is the, and at our three, he's in King's Landing at that point, right? So he only spends two whole chapters in his own point of view in, in his beloved north. So everything else has to be kind of like told to him. Um, but but yeah, I do agree that say, uh, I would have loved to get a day in the life of Ned Stark as, as Lord of Winterfell, just an average day in, in Winterfell. I would read that novella, I think, you know, with George just describing Ned. Yeah,
1: Exactly. I would have just loved a little bit of like... And they met like even a tiny thing of like they they met with some local lords at the hold fest and settled some disputes or just like give give me a paragraph of like them doing lord stuff along the way. Give me a conversation with Howland Reed. That probably gives away too much, right. but like I I would have liked uh, again. It's a very character centric chapter and I love it for that. But I I would have I would have liked a little bit of the filling out of uh, of of Ned as, as because like you said Ned's leaving the north behind for good after this chapter. Yeah. So I would have I would have liked a little a little more uh, uh, developing of that, but uh, the the that's 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 more me just comparing it to what comes later in the story and and having a preference for that. But in terms of actual uh, legitimate bones to pick with this chapter, there really is only one. I'm going to let you uh, take care of that, good sir, because you say it perfectly.
0: So the 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 major issue with this chapter is the Jamie as the warden of the East subplot. So a little background as we've been covering a little bit, there is a subplot early in A Game of Thrones, which has Robert not wanting to name Jon Arryn's son, Robert, uh, or Sweet Robin, I guess I'll go so as to not be confusing, as Warden of the East because he is, quote, a child and is a frail child and is an immature frail child at that. Um, but there is a bit more behind that in that in this chapter, Robert admits to Ned that he has named Jamie Lannister as Warden of the East after, again, Ned has suggested Stannis and or Renly as a distant second option. Um, actually that's not true. He just says, "What? how about one of your brothers? What about Stannis? So this, this subplot kind of falls away after here. So I, I did a bit of, dig, a bit of digging on this cause I didn't quite remember what happens afterwards. What, so Jamie is named Warden of the East by Robert. Is he still Warden of the East after Game of Thrones? Is he still Warden of the East and, you know, by the end of A Dance of Dragons? He's not, but so here's, here's what it is. So, Early on, I feel like this was building into a really a legitimate conflict between the Lannisters and the Starks. So you have the Lannisters that are putting their hooks into Westeros with Tywin Lannister being Warden of the West, Jamie Lannister being Warden of the East. And then, you know, and then the, Ned makes the, the point that it would, they would then have control of half the armies of Westeros. And I feel like originally this was supposed to be congruent with... George's original vision of Jamie killing his way into the Iron Throne and logically Jamie would need armies to, to kill his way into the Iron Throne being the war in the East and having his father's war in the West would give him a plausible pathway to power. However, when we get back to the actual narrative, the actual actual published version of a *Game of Thrones* and the uh, the later volumes of *A Song of Ice and Fire*, the plot really fizzles. It it takes a back burner in the rest of *Game of Thrones*. Lysa, at one point, declares, "Sweet Robin, the quote." The true Warden of the East, which seems to be contrasting Sweet Robin with Jamie, who is the named Warden of the East, where Sweet Robin is the true Warden of the East. But then it really fizzles. And later, just Tyrion just straight up says, I'll name Robert Aaron Warden of the East after all. And and he does this to secure – to keep the Arryns out of and, – and the veil out of the War of the Five Kings. He does this in A Clash of Kings. But that's really it. That's the end of, of this subplot that seems to be have a an enormous buildup here, with Ned being really afraid of Jamie taking on the Wardenship of the East and how that could have an impact on, on, on Westeros and the coming conflict that Ned feels is building because again. We recognize his readers and Ned recognizes that conflict is coming between himself and the Lannisters, or he suspects it is because he's gotten that letter from Lysa, which we get in Catelyn's second chapter. Um, Again, I think it's leftover from the original pitch letter that that George couldn't or didn't abandon uh, for whatever reason. We're not really sure, but uh, it, it is kind of an unsatisfying subplot that just kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, especially going through on, on on this reread.
1: Astute analysis as always. Thank you. Yeah, I think abandoned foreshadowing. You're quite well <laughs> uh, I think abandoned foreshadowing is the most likely explanation for what's going on here. Otherwise, it does... I remember my first time through a Game of Thrones and I was really digging it at this point. And then this particular part came up and then Robert's conversation. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> it seems like the kind of thing I don't like about fantasy where it just gets into obsessive detail mongering yes. In a way that – where there's no blood behind it and no drama and no, like, emotions. Uh, and Martin is generally really good at avoiding he that. Uh, here he gets, it starts to get a little clunky where all this amounts to is just another telegraphed beware the Lannisters warning sign, which this narrative is not lacking for at all.
0: Yeah. It, it, it does – it is kind of I I do like that detail mongering. I think it's a great little line. I'm going to use that from here on out. But uh, but no, it's, it's it really is a uh, something that could have been really developing into something interesting, but it 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 doesn't. And it's okay that it doesn't because no one really cares about the fucking Warden of the East after this point in the story. No, no readers probably do, besides us obsessives who are doing this read read through podcast. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I we were we were talking in pre-production again um, about like whether this would have any impact on on the narrative going forward, whether it'll come back up in the winds of winter. That sweet Robin is the warden of the east, and we just couldn't figure out a way that it would really have any impact whatsoever because all of the armies of Westeros are divided between Stannis and Tommen and Aegon the Sixth and Littlefinger. And Bronzian Royce, and you know everything is so divided at this point. I I can't imagine a warden standing up and saying, "Ah, now all of the armies of the East will side with Aegon or with Tommen." It, it's just it just doesn't it makes sense in the context of the story. And, and I do feel like that's probably why Martin eventually abandoned this as a major plot, in that it it doesn't make sense that the Warden of the East would be that strong of a of a figure in Westeros that could unite armies and that they were putting all this power into because Eastern side of Westeros in the war of the five Kings is so badly divided between all of the different factions that no warden or whatever like-minded position would be able to unite everyone together. Now there are things like the warden of the South, which is um, Mace Tyrell and the warden of the North, which is the Starks at this point, but that becomes the Boltons later on that do play a much more significant role in the uh in the stories as, as we're going to talk about uh going forward but this one of the east subplot just just fizzles and and that's fine that fizzles it just it it does stand out when you when you're doing this read through
1: totally but and it is i mean something we've been talking about in a bunch of different episodes is the abandoned foreshadowing in in this in this first book of developments that Martin later dropped as he went on with the story. And yeah, a lot of them do surround Jamie specifically yes. as a character and uh, the, the kind of image of Jamie that Ned builds up in this chapter, uh, which is in terms of foreshadowing, there is that that does get into pretty heavily of what Martin had in line for Jamie. Uh, in the original pitch letter.
0: Yeah. So in the original pitch letter, Martin has – and I and I've, I've feel like I've read this before in previous podcasts, but it's, quote, Jamie Lannister will follow Joffrey on the Iron Throne by the simple expedient of killing everyone ahead of him in the line of succession and blaming his brother Tyrion for the murders, unquote. So uh, Ned has this whole soliloquy about to Robert talking about how he came into the, iron, into the throne room and he saw – Jamie sitting high above everyone else on on the throne and was waiting for him to do something and finally he gets off the the throne and says oh I was just keeping it warm for Robert and it's supposed to be kind of this sinister foreshadowing. It reads, it rather reads that it was supposed to be sinister foreshadowing of Jamie not just keeping the Iron Throne warm for Robert. That he's eventually his plans were his desires were to sit the Iron Throne and become the King of Westeros, and to follow Joffrey onto the Iron Throne as as Martin originally had um, had done it. Uh, and we're going to talk about it a little bit in a little bit later. Uh, about how Martin writes a much more fulfilling and satisfying way that what ja- what Jamie sitting on the Iron Throne is is doing and Jamie's perspective on it. But here it, it kind of reads a bit more congruent with Martin's original letter, which has Jamie becoming king of the seven kingdoms uh, by killing everyone. And him sitting the Iron Throne at the end of Robert's Rebellion is foreshadowing a bit of, of that here. But in the end, it, it works out in a much better way than – in, in the published version, especially as we get a storm of swords and Jamie's perspective on these events.
1: Yeah. I think that's, I mean, these, uh, the image of Jamie is something we'll get, get much more into as we go on with the series. Cause it kind of keeps shifting uh, in people's memories of him, their present day interactions with him. And then we get him as a POV in terms of what he thinks about them and his backstory. Uh, but, you know, Ned, Ned and Jamie have such kind of different yet similar understandings of this event. It's obviously a primal scene for both of them, but as as Jamie becomes a POV in his own right that gets complicated. Yeah, you have this such the strong image in in Ned's mind of, of how events unfolded, but once we get Jamie's POV that really starts to get complicated.
0: Yeah, you're right. It's uh it's it's one of my favorite things about a song by Sinfire. I just get giddy thinking about it. Um, in in this chapter in editor two, we get Ned's perspective of Jamie's kingslaying, and he has this argument with Robert, where Robert is yelling at, at or yelling. It, it's an exclamation, but it says Robert said. But I can imagine Robert kind of roaring around. But it, Robert says,
1: again, it's Robert's always too high in the volume now. Yep.
0: That's right. I'll try not to like blow our listeners ears out with Robert saying it, but it was seven hells. Someone had to kill Ares. Robert said, raining is bound to a sudden halt beside an ancient barrel. If Jamie hadn't done it, it would have been left to you or me. And then Ned replies, we are not sworn brothers of the Kingsguard. And then later in the conversation, you kind of get this real sense of Ned's disdain for Jamie where Ned says, Ares was dead on the floor drowned in his own blood his dragon skulls stared down from the walls Lannister's men were everywhere Jamie wore the white cloak of the king's guard over his golden armor and that that imagery is just really kind of grounding us in in, in in Ned's strong disdain for Jamie here. Because Ned seems to believe that Jamie had no right to murder Ares because of his sworn loyalties to the king. He was at the King's Guard and morally Jamie in Ned's mind had no right to kill the king he was sworn to. And uh, at least Ned seems to believe as much. But this kind of perspective makes a lot of sense to the character of Ned who holds the twin virtues of loyalty and duty as among his highest virtues. But what's really great about A Song of Ice and Fire is that we actually get Jamie's perspective on these events in A Storm of Swords. We get entirely justified reasons, in my mind at least, for why Jamie became the Kingslayer. As he tells Brienne in that bath scene, that steamy bath scene at Harrenhal, Eres had monstrous ambitions in mind. Quote, the traitors wanted my city, I heard him tell Rossard, but I'll give them naught but ashes. Let Robert be king over charred bones and cooked meat. The Targaryens never bury their dead, they burn them. Ares meant to have the greatest funeral pyre of them all. So, Jamie knew that Ares was intending to burn King's Landing to the ground with wildfire and kill around 500,000 people. But even as the city gates were opened and Tywin Lannister's soldiers sacked King's Landing, Jamie actually, and I actually look back on this, he tried one last time to dissuade Ares from his monstrous act. And this, again, comes from Jamie's fifth chapter in the Storm of Swords, where it says, quote, it fell to me to hold the Red Keep, but I knew we were lost. I sent to Aerys, asking his leave to make terms. My man came back with the royal command. Bring me your father's head if you were no traitor. Ares would have no yielding. Unquote. So, so basically, Jamie was left with two choices. Uphold his vows to the king, who planned to murder hundreds of thousands, or kill the king. And Jamie made his choice. He killed the king, to the horror of the Honorable Ned Stark, and earned the sobriquet that he would be forever known to Westeros by. The Kingslayer. So, like I said, this is one of my favorite aspects of *A Song of Ice and Fire*. Actually, getting the perspective of our of events uprooted and overturned as we get new point of view characters. So far in our study of *A Game of Thrones*, we've really only have had Catelyn, Ned. Sarah's and Robert's perspectives from the Rebellion itself. But when we turn to future volumes, our point of view of Robert's Rebellion widens. We get the perspectives of Stannis and Davos, Jamie, Oberyn, Tywin, Doran Martell, John Connington, and Sir Barristan, who of course we'll be talking about soon if you subscribe to our Patreon. It's just really a whole lot of fun to read these multifaceted accounts from multiple different unique perspectives on the Rebellion as the story progresses. It almost makes me wish that George R. R. Martin would keep expanding his cast of point of view characters so we can get more perspective on events from the past and events in the present as well. Uh, Alas, the story kind of has to come to a close at some point. And George has said he won't be adding new point of view characters into the Winds of winter or dream of spring, uh, at least so far as we know. Um, But it's, it's also really interesting too, in that, you know, you get that widening perspective, but you also kind of get some, uh, some intersections between what two point of view characters are seeing in the other one. So in the editor chapter, I, I, I'm sure you guys did, but I'm, did you notice the disdain that Ned has for Jamie sitting on the Iron Throne? He says, or he thinks from, or he says, tells Robert, quote, I stopped in front of the throne, looking at him. His golden sword was across his legs, its edge red with the king's blood. My men were filling the room behind me. Lannister's men drew back. I never said a word. I looked at him seated there on the throne, and I waited. And then when we get Jamie's point of view of the event from his sixth chapter in Storm of Swords, he thinks, Quote, he remembered Edward Stark riding the length of Arras' throne room, wrapped in silence. Only his eyes had spoken a Lord's eyes, cold and grey and full of judgment. Unquote. I mean, goddamn, I love it. I love that Jamie cat consciously captures the truth that Ned really hates him, disdains him. I guess would probably be the polite way of putting it. But he really hates him, and that he judges, and that Ned judges Jamie for what Jamie did in the Red Keep—that he killed the king as a king's as as a king's guard. That I mean, I, it's one of these things that I, I think about, like what. If Ned knew that Eris had planned to murder hundreds of thousands of people, would Ned have said, "Have been like, okay, Jamie, you make a good point," but I'm I'm curious. I I, I don't know whether who, what 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 Ned would have said if he had known about the wildfire and known about Ares's intent. But as a, an interesting uh, topic of conversation, it's also a great part of Jamie's personality, and that Jamie would rather people see him as a monster, so he never tells anyone about until he tells Brienne, of course, and at Hall about why he killed the king and when what the king was planning. But you know, in the intersection of Ned and Jamie's point of view of what transpired in the Red Keep, we we do get a bit of object objectivity—not hashtag objectivity, but actual objectivity, where. Jamie is rightly sensing out that Ned is Ned is judging him, and Ned is. I, I don't know if Ned really sees Jamie's anger. He sees this kind of laughing, haughty, arrogant kid in in Jamie at the time. But uh, but yeah, it is a really fascinating thing to kind of get that intersection of point of view characters and their perspective on events as 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 they're progressing.
1: Perfectly said, sir. Once one, once more. I mean. Yeah, all those, those, the crisscrossing nest of motives and, and backstories, it's 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 really rich at this point. And I was rewatching watching uh, one of my favorite movies the other day, uh, Rules of the Game. It's a classic uh, French movie, if you haven't seen it from the 30s, directed by Jean Renoir. Um, and it's uh, like a comedy of manners capturing like romantic liaisons among <laughs> like the upper class and then their servants in this big uh, French mansion over the course of a weekend. And it's, it's, it's great. And like, as a bunch of different characters, each with their own little plan, and there's a, a great line in the middle of it spoken by a character played by the director, uh, and he says, "the the worst thing about life is that everyone has their reasons," <laughs> and that that really that resonates to me across *A Song of Ice and Fire*. I mean, it resonates to me, I think, a lot across a lot of stories and life itself, but *A Song of Ice and Fire* specifically in terms of moments like that, where yeah, the dreadful thing is that. Ned is perfectly justified to think that what he did about Jamie, given what he knows, and that Jamie was perfectly justifiable in killing Eris, given what he knew. And as it works out, (laughs) that meant the two of them are going to be at cross purposes. And the sad thing is, is there's so many good reasons for Ned and Jamie to not like each other. Right. There's so many excellent logistical reasons why they are, in fact, enemies. But this actually isn't one of them. Right. Like, if, if Ned knew the truth, I think... Who knows? But I think, given Ned's instinctive drive for mercy, means he probably would have found a way to embrace what Jamie did there. Yeah, and it's 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 just highly unfortunate. It's 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 quite tragic, in fact, that it it, it turned out that they can only miss, misunderstand each other in that regard. Jamie has the line, of, "By what right does the wolf judge the lion?" You know that to extent like we're all we're all predators here, man. <laughs> we're all we're all lords scrapping for power, and again. Ned, you were the one who actually thought this meant something, but you may have been the only one hmm. uh, who thought there was going to be a grand catharsis and, 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 and meaning. Whereas, you know, Jamie's bitterness comes, I think, from the sense that Robert and Ned went out talking about how they were going to the, win the throne and save the realm and get rid of the Mad King. But Jamie did the work right, right. of killing the guy and, and actually saving the realm from a threat no one knew existed. And he's never gonna never going to get praised for it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's something we'll get into as we go, but I think you said it perfectly in terms of the amount of POVs about Robert's Rebellion we get that this entire generation is still living in the past in a lot of way and working through their demons like we see Robert and Ned doing in this chapter.
0: Yeah, you know, it's uh, – I- I just I just love that the, the, those intersections of, of events. You know, you have that really kind of famous one where you have Sam and, and John's chapters, uh, Sam's chapter from A Feast for Crows and John's chapter in, in A Dance with Dragons, where they both are are talking about the same event, which is going south to Samuel going south to Old Town, taking Gilly with him and and Gilly's baby. Or, as it turns out from Jon's point of view character, it's actually um, Mance's child. Uh, in order to save Mance's child, I think it's, it's a cool way that Martin kind of plays with that um, in the plot side. But I do love the, the the thematics, too, here. And it's a really kind of, it's great imagery. I mean, you can imagine you have that whole idea of the Stark army kind of flowing to the Red Keep and the Lannisters drawing back and Jamie atop the Iron Throne and and ned below him, and i know i've seen some artwork about that that does a really good job of depicting that and it's one of those things I, I kind of i don't i don't i don't know i don't think that season eight will really have the the time unfortunately to kind of portray that but i do like those little flashback moments they've integrated in later seasons of Eris the second through brands uh through brands point of view and, and looking through the werewoods and having the visions um but yeah i wish i kind of wish that we would get to see a bit of uh, a bit of stuff from Robert's Rebellion um, going forward in in the show. I don't think that'll probably happen, unfortunately. Besides what we've already seen and what'll be important to the end game of the show, but yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I just I think it's great. I, I think it's one. I think it's one of my favorite things about A Song of Ice and Fire because it's your perspective is always morphing and shifting. So like, even though we have, even though your your perspective might not change, maybe you don't think that that maybe maybe your perspective does change. Maybe you think that Jamie is justified after you get Jamie's point of view. But maybe down the road, maybe you don't think that, gosh, I don't know, that that Barristan was necessarily justified to stand aside while Ares did all of these terrible things. But you get his perspective and you get his difficult conflicts, in his own mind at least, about the ethics of being a Kingsguard to a bad king. It at least gives you a bit of you sympathize or pity the characters for witnessing some of these events, and uh, and yeah, it's 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 good. I just I, it's one of my favorite parts about A *Song of Ice and Fire* is that your perspective is constantly shifting, changing, and being morphed by the adding of new point of views into the uh, in, into the docket and kind of. Making it much more interesting of a story, from my my, my take.
1: It, it works because we get the sense that it really means something to all of these different characters. Their yeah. perspective and their backstory and what it means to them. Like, I mean, I, something I love about the later books is you get these new characters whose worldview is basically, no, this has actually been my story the whole time. This is about my backstory and my coming into catharsis and dealing with my demons. Like, that's what you get from John Connington. And Daron Martell and Barbary Dustin, like the sense of that even these secondary characters have rich enough backstories that this could easily be their right. book if, if Martin chose to write it that way. It happens to not be, but it easily it easily could be. And how much pathos you can wring out of that. I mean, that's something we'll get a lot into when we get more to Stannis, stirring him up for the nth time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Stannis has these moments where he – these contemplative moments where he says, you know, the Lord of Light should have chosen Robert or Renly before me. Right both of them could make people love them and and could could ride into battle looking glorious and either inspire only betrayal why would I why would anyone choose me to be protagonist Martin finds kind of finds that pathos in all these characters dealing with their backstory and kind of trying to reckon with what it all meant and their their place in this universe going forward and that's you know that the existential drama stuff is, is what it is what gives it its real weight I mean because again otherwise like I said earlier it's just it is just a lot of names and places. Right. Uh, that 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 don't amount to anything unless you really give some dramatic oomph. And what I think what really elevates Martin is that he tries tries his best to give everyone that dramatic oomph as best he can.
0: Yeah. You know, I was uh, watching um, recently a bit, I don't know if you ever, folks have folks who are listening have ever watched um, Lindsay Ellis, who does some great work on YouTube doing analysis of a number of movies. And she's, she was doing, um, she has I believe a three-part series now on, on The Hobbit and the the shortcomings of, of that film trilogy that came out a couple of years ago. And one of the things she talks about is about how, you know, some of these f- things like, uh, and, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I feel like I'm going to butcher her work, so I apologize if Lindsay ever listened to this. <laughs> Probably not, but that's okay. Um, that things like uh, discrimination against women, female elves in the story is assumed but it isn't really explored in The Hobbit because there is no real explanation of the backstory and the history here you just you're bringing your modern perspective in as as a watcher whereas I think Martin for the most part and there are points in the time where he does kind of fall into these pitfalls but the Martin imbues the story with a sense of history and narrative that feels real and he does it through the, the characters that he chooses whether it's his point of views so whether it's Jamie and Ned talking about think and thinking back to the Red Keep. Whether it's you know f- folks like uh, John Connington thinking about the Battle of the Bells and what that means to him, or you know Stannis talking about how Robert never thanked him for for holding on to Storm's End for the entirety of his reign, and you get like basically Ned saying that he went into Storm's End and you know the uh, the Tyrells dip their banners. And that was the end of the story. But for Stannis, it's this huge story for him because it's it's so fundamental to who he is as a character. And that's, it, it's a great way of putting it. Um, it. It's a great way of writing and crafting the story of A Song of Ice and Fire in, in, in that it makes us care about these characters, their backstory, because it feels like a lived-in world, one that we're familiar with, but also has its own unique history and unique characters that just are always drawing us farther and farther into, into the world and in such a way that you almost don't want it to end, which, you know, thankfully for us, we only have to wait, you know, a few more years, I guess, for the story to end in the best of all worlds.
1: (laughs) 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 We can hope, we can hope and pray. One one can
0: hope and pray.
1: But I I couldn't summarize it better. I think that, I think that's a, that's a perfect cap on it right there. Yeah, man.
0: Well, uh, Thank you, everyone, for, uh, for listening to this episode. It was a, a lot of fun to talk through. A, one of my favorite early chapters from A Song of Ice and Fire, it might not be brand two, but it's definitely up there uh, in terms of interesting and engaging chapters. And, uh, and yeah, we really appreciate everyone listening and rating and reviewing us and tweeting us. And uh, yeah, we got a lot of great feedback on the Daenerys episode. And thanks again to Eliana for joining us for that episode.
1: Absolutely. You can find her at Arithmetric on Twitter. And uh, yeah, it was great having her on. Uh, we really enjoyed the feedback to Danny too. Uh, you can obviously find us at iTunes and uh, Podbean and SoundCloud. You can find us on social media at ASOIF. Our email is not a cast ASOIF at gmail.com. You can find me personally on Twitter at poorquentin or at poorquentin.tumblr.com.
0: And you can find me at poor... <laughs>
1: <laughs> you yeah, I'm not
0: going to edit that out. Um, and you can find me at Bread and Beefish on Twitter and Bread and Beefish on Reddit. And my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire. And next week, we will be sticking in Westeros again, but we're going to be going north this time on another road trip with Tyrion and Jon Snow and some of the. Not so nice members of the Night's Watch or soon to be members of the Night's Watch on their way up to Castle Black.
1: Yes, indeed. Road trip in the opposite direction. That's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, if you're uh, not on our Patreon yet, you can go check it out at patreon.com forward slash notacast uh, We're going to be recording our uh, patrons only episode on the fate of Sir Barristan Selmy. So uh, check that out, guys, if you want access to that and other special episodes to come.
0: Absolutely. That one's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to do that. But, uh, but yeah, so thank you guys again for listening, and we will see you all next week. Damn straight. Thank you to all of our Patreons, and thanks first to our Lord's Commander of the Kingsguard, Sir Timothy W. and Sir Mark N.
1: Thank you as well to the Kingsguard tier. That includes uh, Sir John H., Sir Spank My (laughs) Sir Philip T., Sir Matthew D., Sir J. Bond, Sir Peter F., Sir Miramets, and Sir Patrick D.
0: And thanks to our sworn swords, Sir Ben, Sir Adam A., Lady Rachel R., Lady Stephanie V., Sir Adam L., Sir Clint W., Sir Dan Z., Lady Fanny, Sir, my lady, Catriona P., Lady Emma S., Sir Chris K., Sir Eli M., Lady June C., Sir, my lady, Suki, Sir Rob L., Sir Alex Zane, Sir Travis M., Sir Keith J., Sir Matt L., Lady Joyce S., Lady Emily A., Mengu the mage, Sir Corey H., Lady Aaron, TJW, Courtney S, Sir Gibb, Sir Andre N, Lady Sarah, Lady Saturn Moon, and Sir Manu, aka Manuclear Bomb.
1: Thanks as well to our uh, Poor Fellows patrons, including Lady Adriana B, Sir Will C, Sir Brett A, Sir Andrew M, Sir Ian L, Sir Michael G, Sir Oliver S, Sir Lachlan O. Lady Randy H. Lady Roxanne C. Lady Amy D. Lady Jennifer W. Sir Gregor with Z's M. uh, Sir John R. Lady Mercedine. Lady Beth B. Sir Milady Siren underscore nine. Lady Laurie, Sir Philip T. Sir Jacob R. Sir Ryan. Uh, Sir Nick S, Sir Kyle H, Sir Michael S, Sir Liam M, Sir Yavi M, Sir Jahani S, Sir Patrick 84, uh, Sir Nikolai H, Sir Milady Jessie H, Sir Andrew Z, Sir Milady A. Sully, uh, Sir Alan C, Sir Milady Russian Machine Never Breaks, Lady Matija D, sorry if I butchered that, sir evan sir clay s sir milady casey m sir steve m sir Horsbane, sir Stephen b lady rita unbound sir joshua m sir taylor o sir tom f sir jason p sir ewan s sir andrew g sir alex a sir paul r sir michael d sir milady ray of light uh, sir mark w Sir Milady Lone Stark State, Sir Gary M, Sir Adam M, Sir Peter M, Sir Joseph S, Sir Milady MJA, Sir Jordan R, Sir Mike S, Sir Choner, Sir Ocean G, Sir Andrew P, Sir Lightning Lord, Sir Patrick B, Sir Mike, Sir Connor D, Sir Milady J Bite, Lady Charlotte B., Lady Jennifer M., Sir Tim W., Sir Biffy Legaine, uh Lady Mary, Sir Nicholas M., Sir Milady One of Thousand, Lady Datura D., Sir Tom W., Sir Kyle D., Sir Matt M., Lady Catherine, Sir Raymond K., Lady Stephanie H., uh, Sir Line or Line, I'm not sure on that one, again apologies, Sir Scott R., Lady Chiara, Lady Heather R, Lady Kathy M, Sir Andrew M, Sir Chad I, Sir Milady B-Swing, Sir Rain F, Lady Alexandra M, Sir Johan P, Sir Andrew S, Sir David K, Lady Vanessa C, Sir Andrew B, Lady Bonnie, Sir Josh B, Sir Scott C, Lady Lucy S, Lady Sarah C, Sir Craig M, Sir James R., Sir Michael, Lady Allison M., Sir Robert H., Lady Evelyn S., Lady Rachel A., Sir Milady Fitter, Lady Bree B., uh, our good friend Sin Rixian, uh, Sir Derek O., Sir Cyrus M., Lady Dulcie L., Lady Erica P., uh, Lady Ephemerata, and Lady Christine H. And for
0: our Sparrows patrons, we wanted to thank Sir Lucifer Means Lightbringer lady purple kitty sir bobby the knight lady stephanie b sir Geraldo b sir mark l sir tom sir Tan, lady tanfacy sir gary g sir edward h lady francisca h sir timothy u sir daniel l sir my lady red r sir lucas k sir rasmus b sir robert m sir simon a lady lola p Sir Jason M. Sir Peels P. Lady Lyrae. Sir Kurt S. Lady Sarah L. Lady Sarah M. Sir Ryan N. Lady Sabrina S. Sir Stormtheus. Sir Ryan I. Lady Laura H. Sir Thomas W. Sir Roger the Knight. Sir, my lady. Kathy S. Christopher V. History of Westeros, our good friends. Sir David B. Sir Chris M, Sir Ben T, Sir Sam B, Lady Stephanie E, and finally, Sir Ben. Thank you all very much for supporting us, and we appreciate you guys and your continued believing in us.
1: You're the best, guys.
0: Thanks a bunch. The Nauticast podcast is written and recorded by poor Quentin and Brendan B. Fish. The music you heard is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit and the closing
1: song is called Alaska Last Goodbye. Thanks everyone for listening and we will see you all next week.